Hello and welcome to Medico Legal Expert Insight. My name is Jessica and in this podcast, we interview medical and legal professionals to help connect and understand when, what, why and how both sides interpret the information given to them. The goal is to share expert opinions from both sides of the medico-legal industry. I do want to say a huge thank you to eReports for the support and access to all these incredible experts. So let's get started and connect the dots through conversation. Today, I would like to welcome Sarah Gilmore, Senior Associate at Slater and Gordon in Ringwood. Sarah is going to share her insights into TPD, Total Permanent Disability Claims, and how it is different. Firstly, she's going to take us through what a TPD claim is and what it includes. Then she's going to take us through how it's different to TAC and work cover, why a client a claim might get rejected even if everyone has TPD in their superannuation, at what stage in the process she needs an expert's opinion, and what type of expert she uses for these particular claims. So let me tell you a little bit more about Sarah. She started her career in 1996 and has built her expertise across several departments at Slater and Gordon, including public liability, work cover and asbestos litigation before moving into superannuation in 2007. She was admitted to practice law in 2014 and is now a senior associate supervising a number of law clerk teams at the Ringwood office, as well as, well as running her own file load. Her focus is helping clients with difficult insurance litigation claims, challenging declined income protection claims through superannuation or private policy at court, interest claims, and trauma policy. Prior to studying law, she completed a Bachelor in Social Welfare, which continues to assist her with clients that are both injured physically and psychologically to help guide them through the legal process. Sarah is really passionate about challenging unreasonable and unfair decisions made by insurers. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Jess. You're welcome. It's it's an absolute pleasure. So let's get straight into it and maybe just tell us what a TPD claim is and what it includes. Sure. So TPD, as you've said in the introduction, stands for Total and Permanent Disablement. And it's insurance which pays a lump sum if people become totally and permanently disabled because of illness or injury. Mm-hmm. Now, most people have an entitlement to to TPD through their superannuation fund membership, uh, which offer people and their members what's called default or automatic insurance. And that can include TPD, which we've just talked about, cover for death, uh, income protection as well. And it's funded through the member's account balance, essentially. So what they've got in their super fund pays the cost of that insurance. Yeah. And... What does TPD mean in terms of like what what's the injury? Yes, yeah, so TPD is different to other personal injury claims. It, for our purposes, what we need to do is find out if a client has cover first and foremost at the date of their injury or the date of their disablement, mm-hmm. so the date that they stopped work. 
So that's the starting point. Do they have colour? Once we've established that, we then need to obtain all the documents that we need to actually submit a claim. And what's fundamental there is assessing what the actual definition for TPD is. Mm. Each fund has a policy and in that policy we'll define for them what is TPD. And that's critical for us when we're doing this work. What's the definition for TPD and what evidence do we need to collate and obtain to be able to make that claim for the client? Yeah. So each different superannuation fund has a different definition to TPD? Yeah, there's some Yeah, there's some similarities. Yeah. And often some will be like for like, but others will be quite different. So for, if I give you an example of a genetic TPD definition, mm-hmm. So an insured person is unable to follow their usual occupation by reason of accident or illness for six consecutive months. In our opinion, after consideration of medical evidence satisfactory to us, is unlikely ever to be able to engage in any regular remunerative work for which the insured person is reasonably fitted by education, training or experience. So that's an example of a standard TPD definition. But what we're seeing now is some changes. Mm-hmm. And some of the insurers now are including some additional clauses that might specify retraining requirements. So um, it, that considers a client's capacity to undertake retraining, reskilling or voluntary work undertaken or could reasonably be undertaken within a reasonable period. So that means we need to satisfy the definition that they are totally and permanently disabled to go back to any work within their existing skill set, but that also, um, for whatever reason, they may not be able to do retraining or that even if they were retrained, their disability or functional limitations are such that they still would not be able to maintain employment in the real world. Yeah, okay. So when you have determined that, yes, you've got a TPD claim, what, what does it include? In terms of cover? Yes. So what they're covered for? Sure. So generally my clients will have, they'll have cover for TPD and they'll have cover, they may have cover for income protection as well. So income protection is a monthly benefit for a set period of time. That might be for two years, five years or to age 60 or to age 65, Mm -hmm. just depending on the policy. TPD is the one-off lump sum and I've seen Default cover anywhere from twenty thousand as a lump sum, you know, upwards of seven fifty. Yeah. So it it depends what the cover is, and it also depends if the clients have just signed up to that member fund and been given default cover at the standard amount, or if they've made a conscious decision to increase their cover. Or alternatively, I've got some of my clients have taken out their own private policies, and so they've got substantial policies because they've made a decision to take out those those policies mm-hmm. to cover them in the event of injury or illness. Yeah, okay, perfect. So why why would a claim get rejected if everyone has TPD in their super? Yes, very good question, and it's one that my clients really struggle with when claims are declined. So yeah. clients come to me um, can come to me either to help them make a claim from the start Mm-hmm. Um, myself or my team, or they come to me once they've made a claim themselves and that claim's been declined. And they are quite shocked. They think, well, I've got this cover. Why haven't they paid me? Yeah. And as I review these cases, it can be for a wide range 
ranging set of reasons. So, for example, it can be simply that the insurer, and what, if we think about that definition that I introduced earlier, the critical key to these definitions is that it is in the opinion of the insurer. So the insurer has to form their own opinion based on the material before them. Mm-hmm. So if that material's got a few gaps in it, if there is a suggestion or what I call a bit of a grey area about a client's ability to return to work, then the insurer will use that to decline the claim. And if the client's not legally represented, they don't realise that there's gaps in those evidence, in that evidence. Yeah. So it may well be as simple as a GP says, look, yes, I agree, definitely, definitely disabled now, but it's unknown whether if we keep going down this path or if they have surgery down the track, there might be a chance for recovery. Mm-hmm. So that that means that the insurer is not satisfied of the permanency aspect of a TPD claim and they may decline the claim on that basis. So other reasons could be um, that the claims declined on eligibility grounds. So what that means is perhaps the injury arose earlier and then the client became a member with that super fund down the track. Um, and then the insurer says, well, it's not our, you know, we weren't covering you at the time of the injury. So those claims can be quite complex because we need to establish when the injury occurred, whether there was an aggravation of the injury and when the client became totally and permanently disabled and was that insurer on risk during that period. Yeah. Um, so we need to persuade the insurer or potentially a court if we go down that path that each and every limb of the definition is satisfied. So it's not enough just to establish that the client hasn't worked for three to six months. It's not enough to establish that the client currently is disabled. You've got to then flesh out, all right, well, what was their past training and experience? What is their education level? Um, All of those things, their whole picture, um, you know, The insurer might say, well, they could return to work in an office-based role, but we're dealing with a 58-year-old truck driver who's had a back injury and now major depression, Mm -hmm. um, psychiatric illness as well. Really, in the real world, how is that truck driver ever going to be able to work with people in an office situation? They've simply got no skills. So all of that needs to be fleshed out and medical evidence obtained to establish and support that that view. We can also have rejections that are quite complex for non-disclosure reasons. Um, I won't go into too much detail about this because it's probably a session all by itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if a client takes out a policy themselves, they'll be asked a number of medical and lifestyle questions. Mm-hmm. Now, if down the track when the insurer investigates that or the injury that the client's suffering from, if it becomes apparent that there might have been some mistakes on the form or the client had prior medical conditions that they didn't disclose to the insurer, Mm -hmm. the insurer may elect to void the policy on grounds of non-disclosure. So that can also be a basis for a rejection. Whether or not it's the right decision that the insurer made is what I become involved in and assess and make recommendations. Mm. Just um, goes to show how important it is to fill out your paperwork correctly from the beginning because it could affect the the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, And to be fair, some of the questions on those forms, I've looked at numerous, 
it can be difficult for a lay person to understand what the questions are. Mm. So, yeah, it can be quite complex. Yeah. So how how is a TPD different to work cover and TAC? You've obviously worked in work cover before. Why why yeah. the move into TPD? Like what what was the attraction and what what is the difference between the, the three? Yes. So I I love TPD because um it's a very interesting area and I don't need to have a negligible event to make a claim. So I don't need to have an employer situation. I don't need to have someone at fault as such. So I can make client claims for clients that hurt themselves at home. I can make client claims for clients that have suffered a mental health condition and for whatever reason that's been aggravated to such an extent they can no longer work. I can make claims for clients that have got a quite debilitating illness or a chronic illness. So for me, and I also do do lots of um, claims for work cover and TSC injured clients as well. So for me, it's the interest in the client's sort of stories and how they've come to this point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I really enjoy and I enjoy just the variety of the work. So a lot of the policies, as I mentioned, are different. So I need to take different approaches yeah. in what assessments I make on the claims. Um, I think. The, those are some of the main differences, but in terms of working up a claim for, for TPD, it's quite different to the statutory-based schemes. Um, and TPD's its insurance and its entitlement is contractual in nature, mm. whereas your TSC and work cover are statutory entitlements that flow from those various schemes. Mm. Um, and also for me, it, it can be, it's quite different. So, for example, if a client is considered a serious injury for the purposes of work cover, that does not necessarily mean they're TPD despite having quite significant injuries because if they are still able to work, then even though they do have quite serious injuries for those other schemes, then they're not going to meet or they're highly unlikely to meet the definition for TPD. So there are those differences. Yeah. Is is there is is the process longer for TPD? The process takes from a claim stage. It can take up to twelve months for a decision. Yeah, wow. so I'm a bit out of touch now as to sort of the work cover schemes. I think common law claims for workers comp can take quite a while, depending on whether the client's injury is stabilised or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but our process can be quite lengthy for a client, um, but we sort of guide them along the way as we push for a decision. Um, But I'm getting some quite good outcomes sort of in around about eight, nine months, which I'm relatively happy with. Providing the insurer is actively investigating the claim, then and my job is to make sure they're doing that, then that's okay. So what, what they'll do behind the scenes is they'll request medical material themselves, they'll review that material and they'll have various internal processes that assess these claims. Mm -hmm. So providing they're doing that, then that within that 12 months is okay as long as they're providing us with regular updates, et cetera, along the way. Yeah. Um, And the difference too for me, and I did say that I don't have to establish negligence to make a successful TPD claim, but I do have to satisfy the insurer 
um, of the client meeting the TPD definition. Mm-hmm. So the work cover and TAC expert reports, because I get a lot of those for my clients that are referred to me through our workers' comp or TAC teams at Slater and Gordon, mm-hmm. they're often focused on finding the cause of the injury. Um, and whilst they're very helpful for me, they're not specifically targeted for a TPD type for a TPD claim, which is focused on that on that definition and capacity for work. Yeah, I don't have to identify a cause of injury necessarily. I have to identify a cause of disability mm-hmm. and disability and functional impairment, but I don't need to establish fault. Yeah. So with the experts that you do get involved, do you, so for instance, just say if you were getting those claims coming from your other teams, do you then have to go and get a separate report because it's actually you're getting the report for a different reason? So it depends. It's case by case Mm -hmm. and it depends where I'm at with the claim. So a lot of the time the material that I'm provided by at the start from the other teams is very useful. Mm-hmm. and it may be enough. It might stand alone, and I can utilise that. Um, however, if the claim's been declined or the client comes to me and they've had a go at making the claim themselves, then I'll usually be able to identify some gaps in that evidence, and that's when I'll I'll consider and usually organise our own medico-legal assessment yeah. to drill down to the actual nitty-gritty, and that is what functional impairments do my clients have and how does that impact on their employability? Yeah. So what what type of experts do you use for these claims? So what I generally – it depends on the material that I've got already on the file, Mm -hmm. um, but I will generally need the opinion of a vocational expert or a occupational physician. And that's just so that they can drill down to what I really need, which is their symptoms, you know, how does their, their, we know what the injury is, we know what their symptoms are, but how does that then relate in the real world when we're looking at jobs and what is my client's functional restrictions? So, for example, if the client has a back injury and they have sitting restrictions, so I had one recently where the client was a truck driver mm-hmm. and there were some alternative vocations suggested. So I'm going to send uh, my client to an um, occupational physician and what I really want to know is what are their feeding limitations? And then I can frame the argument that if they do have sitting restrictions or they need to get up every 10 minutes for a break, etc. How in the real world are we going to find employment to accommodate those restrictions? Um, we've also got other issues that, um, you know, the age of the client, his previous sort of blue collar work, etc. So we've got those other things as well. But I really want to drill down to those functional restrictions and the limitations and what requirements they would need or support would they need by an employer to actually be able to do the role? Mm. And is that realistic and achievable? And if the answer to all that is, well, not really, if they need to be getting up every five minutes for a break, there's not going to be very many employers that are going to put up with that. Yeah. So, with so your, that with... is what, that's sort of what I need um, 
I need I need that evidence to frame my case for, for those particular clients. Yeah, so you're really needing experts to look at the whole picture, the bigger picture, what is yeah, the... Yeah, it's the totality. So that's my, my word. I, I don't know if it's actually in the dictionary, but <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> it's the totality of my client's conditions, symptoms and functional restrictions. So they might have had a back injury, but now they've developed various psychological difficulties for a number of reasons. Could be, you know, over the length of my career, chronic pain takes its toll with my clients. So Mm. um, a lot of them start to struggle, even stopping work, having to go through the various schemes and battle the whole way for entitlement sort of takes a mental toll. So not only have we got the injury in a lot of cases, but we've also got psychological difficulties as well. Yeah. So those are the things that we need to factor in because they will significantly impact on people's ability to return to work and what roles would be suitable for the, for those people. Yeah, I, I would imagine, yeah, you'd be dealing with clients because when you're, you know, lodging a claim, something like this for total permanent disability, it's it would be quite traumatic for your client as well because it's potentially they can't work ever again. So there's not only the physical but the psychological. It is, and it's often a double-edged sword. When I do mm-hmm. get a claim approved, which is what we're aiming to do. But it can be quite sad for the clients as well because they really, a lot of them really generally try so hard to get back to work. And by the time they come to me, they've had multiple failures of return to work. They've sent off, you know, 50-odd resumes. The minute they have to talk about what their restrictions are or what they need to sort of assist them in the workplace, Mm. They don't get another interview. So they've really tried. A lot of them have really tried. And then, unfortunately, they just can't do it. And it can be quite sad, even though they're relieved because the financial pressure's taken off them. It, it's it's almost like a acceptance of where they are, yeah. um, which can be quite difficult for them. Yeah. Then the opposite side to that is, how devastated they are when the claims declined as well. Mm. So that can be very hard for them because they feel like they're not being believed. Yeah. And that's my job to reassure them that, that that's not it. The insurer is not looking at them as a person. They're just looking at them as, you know, against a definition and for whatever reason the insurer's formed the view that they don't meet that definition. Yeah. That can be very hard for them to understand as well. Yeah, I can definitely see where that bachelor in social welfare comes in handy for you. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, it's not a replacement for the professionals helping them, yeah. but it's just having that understanding from a client, sort of a person-centred approach really. But yeah. for me, as a lawyer, you're looking at the evidence and you're trying to find gaps in the evidence and how you need to frame your case. Uh, but behind all that is a real person and a real person that was once working, providing for their family, being able to have goals in their life about what they want to achieve and all, all that that goes with working. And also, and I think with COVID and working from home, we've probably all realised this, just how much we get out of being able to go to work, yeah. that routine, so getting true. up, um, you know, just getting ready, leaving the house, 
and suddenly that was sort of all taken away and you just and now I, I can actually think, well, this must be very, very hard mm. for my clients and they don't have an end date. At least we had an end date to sort of look forward to. Yeah. Um, but they don't have that, unfortunately. Yeah. So what, what advice would you give to experts based on your clients' feedback and feelings from their experiences with medico-legal practitioners? Because obviously it's, it's that you're getting a clinical opinion um, in the report, but what, what advice would you give to these experts based on, you know, your feedback from clients that have gone to see experts before? Sure. Um well, I think what I would say is I want them I would like them to spend one minute before they meet a client and think about how the client is feeling about the appointment mm. because it's very stressful for clients to see a doctor as it is for it's also stressful for my clients to see me as a lawyer as well. So they get nervous. They don't want to make, say the wrong thing. They don't want to appear, you know, that they don't understand what they're being asked. So I just like the doctors to think about that before they see the clients. The way I think about it is when I'm gearing up for a mediation, on my way to the mediation, I'm thinking about the issues in my case, the positives, the not so positives. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about what the other side are going to argue. I'm thinking about how I'm going to respond to that. I'm thinking about the value of the claim. I'm thinking about a reasonable settlement settlement range. I'm thinking about guiding the client through the whole process. So I'm thinking about so many different things, but my client is just not even thinking about any of those things at all. So mm. it's just totally different perspectives of where we're at and we're going to the same mediation. So I think just letting the, the client know that they have read the material that I've provided because what happens is if a client is suddenly asked all these questions, which the expert does need to ask because they need to hear it from the client, not just from what I've told them in my letter of instruction. Yeah. But the client starts to panic that, oh, the doctor doesn't know anything about me. Yeah. What has Sarah done? Why hasn't Sarah told them my story? Yeah. And given them my all my medical records and opinions, et cetera. Um, so that that would help, just weaving that into the introduction yeah. and explaining that even though I've got all this material and I've read it, I, I still need to hear it in your own words. And that way the client's instantly at ease because I think, oh, yeah, they do know me, but I understand that, that they've got to hear it from me. And that will that will put them at ease and create the rapport that they need for it to sort of flow. Yeah. Um, and I think for me um, that, yeah, that would just make a lot of difference just to get that personal, um, personal, establish that rapport. And I think too, just understanding, so I've got clients that have never been to a medical legal doctor before, mm-hmm. but they're the rarity. The majority have gone through review after review after review with, through the work cover or TSC and some of those experiences haven't been positive. Mm. So they come in already with a negative view on what's going to happen. 
So just appreciating that as well and spending that couple of minutes at the start to establish that rapport would really help. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, this has been very insightful, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Um, I'm sure our listeners are going to get loads of value out of it and I think that was some really good advice at the end just with the experts really sort of taking letting your client know that they have read the materials and they are aware of what's going on, but they just need to hear it in their own words. I think that their own words. Yeah, that's I think that's something really, really good to take out of this podcast. So thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. And you have a lovely day. Thanks very much, Jess. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Bye-bye.